Hi, I'm Jennifer Blom, a narrator at Macmillan Audio. If you enjoyed the Unknown History podcast, there's a new audiobook I think you'll love from our team. It's called Scorpion's Dance by Jefferson Morley. If you like what you hear, you can find the audiobook wherever audiobooks are sold. Rolando and Juan Pedro slid through the glass doors of the Montmartre in the early hours of Sunday morning, pistols in their pockets. A balmy breeze blew in from the Malacon Esplanade outside. It was October 28, 1956. La Rampa, the street passing the white neon sign of the Havana Cabaret, was thronged as the two men plunged into the glittering, purring, tinkling confines of what the guidebooks called America's Most Luxurious Nightclub, where the golden hours go by more smoothly. They were looking for a man in a white linen suit, Rolando, 23 years old, not quite six feet tall, had a petulant mouth and intense brown eyes a little small for his face. Juan Pedro was taller, broad-shouldered, and fair-skinned with frame glasses and a dark blue sports coat. They edged their way into the lounge. Ladies in gowns, necklaces glittering around bare throats, were talking to men in silk suits who lit cigarettes amid faux French furnishings, the air thick with cigar smoke, Spanish and English, jazz and cha-cha-cha. The duo passed under the raised hoofs of a massive white marble statue of a vaulting stallion ridden by a bare-breasted Joan of Arc. They searched for the cold visage of Esteban Ventura, captain of the 5th Precinct of the Havana Police, a man known for issuing orders to kill and torture with the blank chill of a bureaucrat. Ventura often gambled at the Montmartre, flanked by bodyguards. He wore only the finest English cloth. Sidling into the bar, Rolando recognized another leader of the regime, Colonel Antonio Blanco Rico, the chief of the Servicio Inteligencia de Militario, SIM. He was sitting in uniform with two other officers and their wives, laughing and smoking as they talked about a friend's 20th wedding anniversary. Just 36 years old, Colonel Blanco Rico was already trusted by dictator Fulgencio Batista, as well as by the Americans. After Vice President Richard Nixon visited Havana in February 1955, he sent Colonel Blanco Rico a letter of thanks. If Ventura didn't show up, Blanco Rico would suit their purposes just as well. He was said to be the rare commander in Batista's regime who did not resort to torture during interrogation. Nonetheless, the SIM had a reputation as one of the bloodiest of the government's repressive organs. In the den of corruption, any henchman would serve as an exemplary target for patriotic Cuban youth. Rolando Cubella was the son of a tailor in the town of Placetas in central Cuba. His parents sent him to a well-regarded private secondary school in Cardenas, the port city 80 miles east of Havana. With his friend and classmate Jose Antonio Echevarria, he went on to the University of Havana, where they joined the Federación Estudiantil Universitaria, or FEU, in 1950. 
Echeverria, an architecture student, soon gained a reputation for passionate eloquence in denouncing President Fulgencio Batista, who had taken power in a bloodless coup in March 1952. Elected president of the FEU in 1955, Echeverria and friends secretly formed the Directorio Revolucionario, a group of like-minded young men and women pledged to take armed action against the dictatorship that controlled the island. Echeverria conceived a strategy of tyrannicide. The Directorio would lead a national rebellion by assassinating prominent figures in the government and working their way up to Batista himself. Echeverria's only rival, in terms of energy and eloquence, was Fidel Castro, a tall, rangy lawyer who graduated from the gangster politics of the university to found the 26th of July movement, a coalition of leftist and labor groups that had also taken up arms against Batista. Why did these boys from good families turn into pistoleros? The University of Havana had long been a rough place, where an election for law school or business school representative to the FEU might be settled by a gun battle, because those positions usually led to real jobs in the government or business. Now the government was just another racket controlled by the dictator, his accomplices, and his paymasters, who owned the casinos and hotels sprouting up in Vedado, near the university campus. Chief among them was Meyer Lansky, a five-foot-four accountant from Brooklyn known as the Little Man. Lansky had come to Havana in the 30s while handling the finances of Charles Lucky Luciano, the boss of New York City who unified disparate Italian crime syndicates into the loose-knit federation known as the Mafia. Batista, the son of a cane cutter, had emerged from a 1933 student-led revolution to become president. Lansky cut his new friend in on the revenue from his casino, the Nacional, the grandest hotel on the Malacón. When Batista returned himself to power in 1952, the little man persuaded him to implement a new law that made casino licenses available for $25,000 and exempted hotels from paying corporate taxes. In return, Lansky's courier delivered a suitcase groaning with greenbacks to the side door of the presidential palace every month. Lansky imported the classiest and sexiest American and European musical acts to the Montmartre. With the spread of commercial jet travel, tourists from North America and Europe started to stream into La Habana for the legal gambling and uninhibited nightlife. Yet not far from the opulent pleasure dome swarming with white North Americans was Las Yaguas, a sprawling district of run-down houses and open sewers. Thousands of poor people, many of African descent, lived in the filth of the Solaris, densely packed neighborhoods that the tourists never saw. The rich thrived while the middle class was throttled and the poor forgotten. Cuba had a proud past, a decadent present, and a humiliating future. Colonel Blanco Rico and his friends paid their check and strolled to the elevators. Marta Poli de Tabernia was talking to Colonel Blanco Rico as she pushed the down button. Looking over his shoulder, she was astonished to see two men extract pistols from their jackets, raise them, and aim. An explosion jolted the colonel in the back near his upper right shoulder. Another shot punctured his lower back. A third quivered in his chest. A fourth 
thudded into his thigh. Signora Tavernia's vision went blank as panicky ladies careened into mirrors, thinking they offered escape from the gunfire. Colonel Blanco Rico, now crumpled on the plush carpet, looked up at Rolando and smiled. Perhaps the dying man understood why a young patriot would raise a pistol. Rolando stared. The colonel's smile froze. Juan Pedro pulled at Rolando's elbow. They tucked away their guns, ducked down the service stairs, burst out onto the cobblestones of Humboldt Street, and joined the stragglers heading home into the night. Even as the shock of Colonel Blanco Rico's killing subsided, nothing much changed. Batista's men went on a killing spree of their own, gunning down ten students who had taken refuge in the Haitian embassy. With the leaders of the Directorio in hiding and Fidel Castro criticizing the attack from exile, Batista had never been more secure in his power. The American ambassador paid a sympathetic visit to the presidential palace. The little man's suitcase arrived punctually. Nat King Cole crooned at the Tropicana. The good life in Havana rolled on. The bloodshed of the regime no longer shocked. After the assassination at the Montmartre, the joke went around, que ea mayor ser un negro pobre que un blanco rico. Better to be a poor black man than blanco rico, a rich white man. A revolution was coming. Briefing the vice president extended a limp paw. The CIA man shook it firmly. Richard Nixon knew the type, another snobbish Georgetown liberal, no doubt. Dick Helms introduced himself as the assistant deputy director, standing in for his boss, Frank Wisner, who was traveling in Europe. The two men sat in Nixon's quiet office in the Senate office building on Capitol Hill. Nixon's secretary, Rosemary Woods, a trim redhead, toiled at a typewriter outside the office door. Nixon and Helms were the same age, though Helms, two months younger, wore his 43 years rather less anxiously. As Nixon digressed on the tragedy of Hungary, Helms flicked a match to light a Chesterfield. His smile did not always include his eyes. The news of December 1956 was dispiriting. The front-page headline in the Morning Post shouted, General Strike Grips Rebellious Hungary, Police Crowds Clash. Both men knew the U.S. response would be muted. Two months before, Hungarian student demonstrators attracted enough popular support to force the replacement of the widely despised first secretary of the Communist Party. The anti-government crowds burgeoned and Hungarian military units began turning on their Soviet comrades. The Hungarian communists, previously deferential to Moscow, turned over the government to Imre Nagy, a reformer in their ranks. The dream of rolling back the Soviet's post-war empire in Eastern Europe had animated the agency ever since its founding nine years before, in the dumpy buildings along the reflecting pool that housed the clandestine service, rollback was more than mere aspiration. It was a mission, a way of life. Suddenly it seemed possible. Thank you for listening to this clip provided to you by Macmillan Audio. To hear more, look for this title wherever audiobooks are sold.